National Trust Magazine, Autumn 2021. Hello and welcome to the Autumn issue of National Trust Magazine. I'm Sally Palmer, editor of the magazine, and I'll be taking you through some of the highlights, including news, features and letters from our members. Autumn is my favourite season, and not just because it's my birthday. I take joy from the beautiful colours and bright frosty days, but I especially love the feel of autumn rain against my face while I'm out for a stomp, and the comforting sound as it patters against the window while I cosy up on the sofa. This issue brings together all that makes autumn special with the trust. Hear about bushcraft expert Ray Mears's connection with forests and a selection of autumn walks. And enjoy a selection of paintings from the Trust's world-class collection. Autumn also means it's time for the Trust's AGM. We hope you'll be able to join us on the 30th of October 2021. You'll find details on how to get involved and your voting papers at nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash AGM. Here's Olivia Vinnell, Neka Okoye and Glenn McCready to tell you about what's been happening around the Trust. If you've been dreaming of sun-kissed Mediterranean scenes, look no further than Sissinghurst Castle Garden in Kent. Here, Trust gardeners have transformed an unfinished garden, Delos, into a homage to the Aegean island. Delos was the vision of Sissinghurst's owners, Vita Sackville West and Harold Nicholson, who were enthralled by their trip to the Greek island in 1935. But the English climate, north-facing garden, and their limited knowledge of Mediterranean planting meant their delos never became all the couple hoped for, and over the years it lost its character. Working with landscape designer Dan Pearson, Sissinghurst's gardeners have used modern landscaping techniques and a broader planting scheme to create a more robust garden, which recaptures Vita and Harold's romantic vision. At the heart of the design is a central street, and agora, or square, whose formal style reflects the urban areas of Delos Island. Beyond this, the garden becomes more natural. The team has planted some 6,000 perennials typical of Greece and the wider Mediterranean basin, while pomegranate, cork oak, and cypress trees provide shade and add focal points. The Trust has renamed a meadow on the White Cliffs of Dover, Dame Vera Lynn Down, to mark the anniversary of the wartime singer's death in June 2020. The meadow was saved in 2017, following a fundraising campaign she supported, and it is now filled with wildflowers and birds. It is fitting that the fields she helped save are now home to the skylark and its beautiful melodic song, says General Manager Ginny Portman. A remarkable collection of photographs documenting the excavation of the Anglo-Saxon ship burial at Sutton Hoo in Suffolk in 1939 has now been digitised. The photos, taken by keen amateur photographers Mercy Lack and Barbara Wagstaff, are believed to be the oldest surviving colour photographs of a major archaeological dig and provide a unique insight into the people and processes behind the world-famous excavation. The AGM is being held on the 30th of October 2021 at the Harrogate Convention Centre and we're looking forward to welcoming members. A number of members' resolutions have been submitted on a range of topics. As well as voting on the resolutions, members can vote for candidates standing for election and take part in a Q&A session. Information about how to join your AGM is available online at nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash AGM. 
Numbers of endangered hen harriers have been increasing at the vial in Rossili Swansea in recent years. The vial is an ancient agricultural system of narrow land strips divided by boundaries. After the Second World War, as farming modernised, many of the hedges were lost. Since 2017, the Trust has been working to restore them and provide valuable space for wildlife. We've also been leaving between 10 and 20% of the vial's arable fields fallow each year to encourage farmland birds and birds of prey. We're so pleased to see hen harriers return in greater numbers to the vial, says ranger Mark Hipkin. Hen harriers are top predators, and their presence, particularly in a farmland environment, is a good indicator of a healthy landscape. We reported last autumn that National Trust archaeologists were attempting to date Britain's largest chalk hill figure, the CERN giant in Dorset. After 12 months of state-of-the-art sediment analysis, we can reveal that the giant was probably first constructed in the late Saxon period. Many archaeologists thought he was prehistoric or post-medieval, so this is a surprise. The project was funded by the National Trust, the University of Gloucestershire, Allen Archaeology and the Pratt Bequest. A wildfire last spring caused devastating damage to over 200 hectares of fragile heather habitat in the Mourne Mountains in County Down. The intervention of Northern Ireland Fire and Rescue Service, Trust Countryside teams and the local community meant that thankfully the fire didn't reach the precious upper blanket bog area. Before the fire, ravens were seen feeding chicks at Thomas's Mountain, as the blaze moved past their nest site, the ranger team didn't know if they would survive. But a few weeks after the fire, the call of the raven was heard in the mountains again, a sign of hope that the landscape will in time recover. If you would like to donate, visit nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash mag forward slash mourns dash fires dash appeal. The Trust launched the Plant a Tree fundraising campaign in September last year to help reach the goal of establishing 20 million trees by 2030. The campaign got off to a brilliant start and thousands of supporters have already helped us get going. Thank you. We've received thousands of donations to the Plant a Tree Fund, which means we can plant almost 200,000 saplings. Many people have dedicated trees in memory of loved ones or in celebration. Popular dedications were for new births, weddings and engagements, Eid, Mother's Day, Father's Day and new jobs. Thousands of people took part in the March Strava Challenge, Spring into Action, by walking, running or cycling for five hours over three weeks, raising £62,576. We still have a long way to go, but thanks to supporters, partners and businesses, we're well on our way. To donate, visit nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash plant dash a dash tree. And those were some of the highlights from the autumn news. Our next feature is from the Director General. Your chance to hear from Hilary McGrady. Here at the Trust, we care for some truly extraordinary trees. The old man of Colk in Derbyshire is an oak thought to be over a thousand years old. Imagine what he's seen. 
The beautiful coronation tree at Oxborough Hall in Norfolk is a grand copper beech planted for the Queen in 1953 and still going strong as she approaches her platinum jubilee. Before long, these and the countless other beautiful trees will start taking on their autumn hues, signalling that another year is drawing to a close. And what a year it has been. In May, after tireless preparation by staff and volunteers, we began to reopen our houses, which is something we'd been looking forward to for many months. It was a big moment, with visitors once again able to enjoy cultural treasures firsthand. We've been finding ways to share the treasures and trust collections with you all year, online, through social media and in books. We brought you 125 treasures earlier this year. And now the next title in this series, 100 Paintings from the Collections of the National Trust, is due to be published this autumn. I'm looking forward to seeing some of the treasures from the book Under the Spotlight at more than 50 of our places this autumn. The Vine in Hampshire will be showing never-before-seen design sketches for the Sanda Memorial Chapel, as well as the Ring of Sinicianus, inscribed with the devotion to Venus, the Roman goddess of love, which will be redisplayed in a new case after many years on loan and in conservation storage. Elsewhere, replicas of precious objects, such as the Sarum Missal at Lyme in Cheshire, mean you can touch and handle the collections up close. Printed in 1487, this precious book, used for the celebration of Mass, is one of the best preserved of its kind and an early example of the work of England's first printer, William Caxton. Petworth in West Sussex will have five treasures from the book on display and visitors will be invited to nominate their own favourite treasures from the collection. Those ancient trees and woodlands in our care are treasures too, of a different sort. As Ray Mears explains, appreciating autumn colour is wonderful for mental refreshment and there are many lovely trust woodlands for you to enjoy. Of course, the importance of trees goes far beyond their well-being benefits. They have a huge part to play in biodiversity and the health of the environment. As COP26, the 2021 United Nations Climate Change Conference approaches, the Trust is working harder than ever to advocate for action on climate change. We're making a tangible difference on the ground too, planting tens of thousands of trees and identifying sites for 1.5 million more this year. This work will deliver many benefits, from enriching wildlife habitat and mitigating flooding, to making our landscapes more resilient in the face of climate change. We couldn't do any of this work without your support. In fact, we were able to speed through our first winter of planting thanks to donations made to our Plant a Tree Fund. Thank you to everyone who's contributed so far. I can't end this column without extending my heartfelt thanks to our chair, Tim Parker, who steps down in October after seven years in post. I am so grateful to Tim for his support and for staying on after his first two terms to stabilise the trust during the pandemic and make it secure for the future. This autumn, whether you crunch through the leaves in a trust garden, set off to spot wildlife on our coast, or discover some of the countless treasures in our houses, I hope the places in our care help you make the most of this beautiful season. Thank you, Hilary McGrady, the Trust's Director-General.
In our next article, bushcraft expert and woodsman Ray Mears reflects on a lifetime spent learning about survival in wild places all over the world. His experiences have fostered his love of woodland here in the UK, particularly when autumn colours are at their finest. He says human well-being depends on people looking after forests for the future, so we can all spend time among the trees. The article is read by Glenn McCready. I first visited the rainforest of Central Africa more than 30 years ago. I found a confusing tangle of vines and impossibly tall trees, with dark-as-night shadows pierced by dazzlingly bright spotlights of equatorial sunlight. Covering 695,000 square miles, this is a truly vast landscape, in which it is all too easy to become disorientated. Elephants move so silently through the forest that they seem invisible. The first realization that you have of their close proximity is their low rumble, penetrating the foliage just a few meters ahead. The forest also conceals many potential threats, from the beautifully camouflaged but highly venomous and long-fanged gaboon viper to the mighty lowland gorilla. My guides were three Bayaka women, one cradling an infant, and this was their home. They enthusiastically filled my brain to overloading with their knowledge of the natural world around them. Look, we scrape the bark from this tree. I watched as, using a machete, they scraped away the dark olivaceous outer bark to reveal a mango-yellow inner bark. Then, while one woman held up a dark green leathery leaf like a shelf beneath the patch, the other scraped fine shavings of the inner bark onto the leaf. We use it for headaches. I took some of the bright yellow bark scrapings and sniffed them. There was a delicate chemical odour that I could not place. They demonstrated, one woman anointing another's forehead with the inner bark with practised skill, making a neat yellow band that adhered quite readily. We do this, then the headache goes away. It was a privilege to walk with them, to watch their interaction with the forest. More than thirty years later, I have only to stand in the dappled shade of a woodland and close my eyes for a moment to be transported back there. Since then, I have spent time with other forest people around the world. Each time, three major things are reinforced. First, that they live in a graceful dependency on their forest resources. Second, that the secret to the forest way of life is attention to many small details. And lastly, that human survival demands that the forest is protected. In my own lifelong study of bushcraft, I've tried to rediscover the secret knowledge of our UK trees and forest plants. In what ways did our forebears know the species that we are so familiar with? In the process, I have pieced together many of the tattered remnants of our own cultural forest lore and occasionally, excitingly, rediscovered uses for trees and plants not mentioned in our written record. It has been a difficult but fascinating journey that has taught me to revere trees and their gifts to humanity and that has transformed my relationship with nature. What I've come to realize is that when I walk in a forest, I feel good. At no time in the year do I feel that emotion more strongly than now, in the autumn, as the broad-leaved forest prepares for its winter sleep. Nothing is more pleasing to me than to sit on moss with my back to an ancient tree bowl 
and bask in the year's waning sunlight. These days make me feel good deep inside. They give me energy. I feel alert and enlivened, spiritually connected to all living things. I have come to think of these experiences as essential preparations for the adventure of the forthcoming winter. But I am not being over-romantic. There is an increasing body of scientific research that supports my instinctive response to the forest. In 1982, the Japanese Ministry for Agriculture coined the term Shinrin-yoku, which translates as forest bathing. Drawing on ancient Shinto and Buddhist practices, the purpose was to promote time spent outdoors, to alleviate growing levels of work-induced stress and a high incidence of autoimmune disease. The clearly beneficial results have led to scientific investigation to understand the mechanisms of this nature therapy and are proving to be truly astonishing. The concept of forest bathing is to take a short, leisurely visit to a forest or woodland, allowing the subconscious mind freedom to discover small details for itself without direction. As far as is possible, it's about investigating the world with all of the senses, drinking in the shapes and tones, becoming mindful to the sounds of birdsong or the dripping of rain from leaves. Described in this way, it sounds very contrived, but it need not be. The concept is simple. Take time out from the normal hectic pace of life to allow nature back in. But do not imagine that this is just about a change of pace and scenery, for when we are amongst trees, they are having a far more profound influence on us than we realize. Research supports our feeling of mood enhancement when we are outdoors, recording an increase in positive feelings and a reduction in negative feelings, as well as improved sleep patterns. More than this, it has revealed that time outdoors boosts self-esteem, encourages calmness, and results in improved patience. Compared to modern life, where we actively direct our attention to the world around us, in nature our attention is grabbed in a more random way, by sensory stimuli that intrigue our curiosity. This provides relief to our otherwise overexploited direct attention, and by that means can improve our ability to focus our attention when really needed. Children with Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, or ADHD, have shown marked benefits from regular exposure to nature and learning in an outdoor classroom. We also benefit physiologically from walking amongst trees. Our pulse rate slows, our blood pressure drops, our levels of cortisol, dopamine and blood glucose stabilize. Most intriguing of all, we are exposed to phytochemicals, compounds produced by plants to help them resist infection, that can help boost our immune and increase our natural killer cells that enable us to fight off disease. It would seem that enjoying forest parks has the power to act as a sort of preventative medication, a form of natural aromatherapy that is freely available, has no known side effects and requires no prescription. Japanese researchers have shown that the positive effects of a three-day, two-night forest bathing trip on natural killer cells lasted up to 30 days. Perhaps we should not be surprised to discover these things. 
After all, we lived in forests for the majority of our six-million-year evolution. It is only in the past few thousand years that we have turned our axes and saws to the trees that once provided us with sanctuary. Our ancestors made use of the forests, but they didn't clear them on a large scale. As we face the need to halt and correct centuries of environmental abuse, trees have come onto the political agenda. Debates still occur over the cost versus the benefit of trees in the role of carbon sequestration. But consider, trees remove pollutants from the air, produce clean air, slow the runoff of rainwater, reduce soil erosion and flooding, all the while providing habitat and greatly increasing biodiversity. Can we afford to live without them? One research project in the United States monitored the health of a community losing their trees to disease. The results indicated an associated increase in cardiovascular and lower pulmonary illness. At heart, we are all people of the forest. We have just forgotten how to be so. But it is now official. Trees and forests are good for us, both mentally and physically. All we need to do is enjoy them, and, of course, take care of them. The current estimated woodland coverage in the UK is just 13%. I am reminded of an ancient proverb. The best time to plant a tree is 20 years ago. The second best time is right now. It was lovely to hear Ray Mears' reflections about the power of trees. Now let's hear about some of the trust places where you can enjoy glorious autumn colour. Set high on a sandstone escarpment, the woods at Audley Edge in Cheshire take on a warm glow in autumn. You might come across strange rock features such as Wizard's Well and Devil's Grave. And on a misty day, it's easy to see why legends are linked to this landscape. At the Blickling Estate in Norfolk, the multi-use trail is accessible for pushchairs and adapted wheelchairs so the whole family can enjoy a stroll under vibrant oak, beech, lime and sweet chestnut trees. Botnant Garden in Conway is home to trees from around the world, including rare species collected over 100 years ago. In autumn, you can wander through the glades amongst fiery Japanese acers or find yourself surrounded by a sea of red, gold and green conifers in the dell. On the edge of Dartmoor, Devon's Teen Valley is easy to reach, yet retains an air of mystery and wildness. The woodland is alive with the sounds of the Teen River rolling through the gorge and ancient trees which rustle in the autumn breeze. Crom, in County Fermanagh, is home to the largest area of oak woodland in Northern Ireland. Take some time to explore this landscape, tasting the sweet tang of blackberries or seeking out the fiery foliage reflected in Loch Erne. Just a short tube journey from central London, Morden Hall Park offers space to roam and unwind on a crisp autumnal day. Seek out the sunflower yellow ginkgo trees in the Rose Garden. These are just a few of the trust places that are well worth a visit this autumn. To find an autumn walk near you, visit nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash mag forward slash autumn dash walks. 
This year has been hugely significant in the global effort to tackle climate change. The Trust's Outdoors and Natural Resources Director, Patrick Begg, explains how, for the Trust, it has been an opportunity to stand up and show the way we are taking action against this great threat. It's very easy to find the public debates about climate change quite technocratic. There is plenty said about increases in temperature measured by degrees or precise to the millimetre rises in sea levels. The numbers can appear relatively small, and the constant talk of data has a clinical, remote edge. This is why the National Trust's experience of real changes on the ground is so important, as the Trust really is the nation's canary in the coal mine for how nature, gardens, precious buildings and fragile collections are being affected by our changing climate. Met Office data showed that hot days of at least 40 degrees Celsius could become common by 2040. We're seeing more severe flooding episodes, temperature extremes which affect our buildings, collections and gardens, sea level rise which is increasing coastal erosion, and a larger number of wildfires which damage the moorlands we look after, most recently in the Mourn Mountains in County Down and Marsden Moor in West Yorkshire earlier this year. Here at the Trust, we're already stepping up and taking action. Experience is firmly reinforcing our view that accelerating climate change is the single biggest threat to the houses, wildlife and landscapes that the Trust cares for. So at the start of 2020, we shared a plan for how we were going to address it. The plan has three main parts. Capturing and storing carbon in soils and vegetation by establishing more woodland and restoring peat bogs decreasing our own carbon footprint by reducing the use of fossil fuels in our day-to-day work as much as possible, and adapting our places to cope better with the impacts of more extreme weather. Ham House in London is one of the places that's already adapting. For the first time in its history, it recently had to close to the public as a result of heat and humidity. During the summer of 2018, Temperatures at visitor reception and the cafe kitchen reached 39 degrees Celsius, and the property closed for the day to protect staff and visitors. That same summer, we had to close some rooms in the house because of high ambient temperatures. There was concern for the health and comfort of volunteer room guides, of course, as well as for precious furniture, paintings and fabrics. In the garden, tours had to be suspended due to limited areas for visitors to find shade and access drinking water. Rosie Files, Ham House and Garden's head gardener, says, The garden team now apply what we call a climate change perspective to every action in the garden. This means introducing plant types that are more resilient to high temperatures, such as exotics like cannas and agaves, instead of more traditional herbaceous planting. In Ham's vegetable plots, typical Mediterranean produce is becoming the norm. Outdoor-grown aubergines, chilies, and a long tomato season, alongside the salads, root vegetables, stone fruit, and edible flowers, which have been grown at Ham House and Garden for nearly 400 years. For Ham's gardeners, their working hours have shifted to start and finish earlier to help them avoid the punishing summer afternoon heat. They're also considering how best to create more shade cover in the garden during opening hours as temperatures increase. The Trust is pioneering innovative ways to study climate change. Climate affects who visits our properties and when. We know that people are less likely to come to National Trust places if it's very hot or cold, and increased high winds and rainfall could mean we need to close our gates more frequently, 
both to protect people and delicate architecture from the effects of violent storms such as falling tree boughs or flash floods. As conditions become extremely wet or dry, existing levels of footfall could lead to greater erosion, damaging fragile habitats or formal lawns. Earlier this year, we created a climate change hazard map, an online tool to pinpoint which properties are most likely to need adaptations for climate change over the next 40 years. The hazard map means we can identify the places most vulnerable to landslips and flooding and then mitigate these risks by planting more trees. It will help us adapt to other climate-related problems too, including creating shade at locations where temperatures are likely to soar. Formby in Liverpool has the fastest-moving coastline in National Trust care. We're already thinking hard and differently about how we manage the land here and looking for opportunities for the future. Some of the area's famous sand dunes are moving inland as a result of wind, tide and storms, and infrastructure such as car parks, paths, grassland and woodland is becoming squeezed by the shifting landscape. Some storms have left their mark, with roughly 10 metres being eroded from the front of the dunes during the storms of 2013 and 2014. The rangers would usually expect to see a loss of around 4 metres of dune habitat in an average year. More frequent storms may increase the speed and scale of the problem. We have an ambitious goal to reach net-zero carbon emissions by 2030. With continued help from trust supporters, we're making some big changes. We've been developing green energy projects, which mean 50% of our energy now comes from renewable sources. Trust rangers are literally getting on their bikes, with the help of a new collaboration with Raleigh, as the first few countryside teams are travelling around on rechargeable e-bikes and leaving their vehicles in the garage. We've also developed plans to adapt the rangers' kit to run off battery power, removing another element of carbon emission from their petrol and diesel use. Thanks to generous supporter donations to the Plant a Tree fundraising campaign, we've made a wonderful start to our goal of planting and establishing 20 million new trees in the next 10 years. The campaign has already raised almost £500,000, meaning teams have been able to plant thousands of young saplings across the UK. We've identified sites for a further 1.5 million trees to be planted during the next two years. There's a happy coincidence in many of the actions we need to take. Creating native woodland or restoring floodplains is also great for nature and provides more homes for a rich diversity of plants and wildlife. A number of trust sites are now experimenting with the return of beavers, a native species lost around 400 years ago, but now recognised as one of nature's great engineers, which are helping return rivers to a good ecological condition and hold back floodwaters. In 2014, we took the decision to allow the sea wall to erode at Cum Ivy on the south coast of Wales. As a result, the sea flooded onto the land there for the first time in 300 years, creating a salt marsh. Not only does this new landscape store carbon to help fight climate change, it is also helping combat the nature crisis by giving a home to dozens of new species. We are stepping up, but we need governments to do the same. Without policy, resources and clear leadership, the scale of response we need is at risk of failing. World leaders are visiting Glasgow this autumn for the United Nations Climate Change Conference, or COP26. As the UK has presidency of COP26 this year, we have a chance to demonstrate real leadership by example.
government ministers have identified nature's role in tackling climate change as a priority. That's why this year we've been inviting politicians and policymakers to visit our places, when COVID-19 guidelines have allowed, to see for themselves the everyday impacts that climate change is having, from Divis and the Black Mountain in County Antrim to the Cornish coastline. The future is challenging, but there are also good reasons to feel inspired by many of the changes we need to make. We can all feel part of a great shared endeavour, as the small, everyday things anyone can do all add up to big carbon cuts. Alternatives to fossil fuels are often better. Moving to electric machinery, such as strimmers, chainsaws and hedge cutters for our rangers, is already creating kinder working conditions, as there is less noise, cleaner air and fewer vibrations with electric machines. Restoring rivers creates genuine win-wins too, by reducing flood risk for communities, capturing and storing carbon, and helping nature flourish. I look around the National Trust, and I feel galvanised. I hope you will too. Many trust properties face issues as a result of climate change, and at some places we're trying out innovative ways to protect them for the future. The River Scale is an essential part of Fountains Abbey in North Yorkshire, but at times, flooding can threaten its very survival. The solution is to slow the flow of water upstream and reduce soil runoff into the river. Nature hasn't been quite quick enough to adapt to a changing climate at the Killerton Estate in Devon. To help habitats thrive, we're creating more woodland by changing arable land to agroforestry and wood pasture. The wetland habitat of Malham Tarn in North Yorkshire is an important home for nature, but the delicate land has been degraded in recent years by farming. We'll extend, restore and rewild it to give species space to move and adapt. Storms and rising sea levels in Mount Stewart County Down have caused increasing problems at the coastline and gardens of the historic estate. The team are working with local partners to understand coastal change and make plans to adapt. At the Trust's only in-hand lowland arable farm, the Wimpole Estate in Cambridgeshire, the team are exploring nature-friendly farming methods, such as introducing wood pasture, scrub and wetlands, to capture carbon and increase habitats for nature. It's inspiring to hear about the work being done to preserve Trust places for future generations. Though climate change is a particular concern for global leaders this year, it's something that will need attention for a long time to come. It's also something we can all play a part in tackling in our own lives. Here are some ways you can help. 1. Show politicians and policymakers you care by adding your name to the Climate Coalition's Declaration for a Greener Tomorrow. Sign the declaration at theclimatecoalition.org forward slash declaration. 2. Find out the 16 steps you can take to reduce your personal contribution to climate change at count-us-in.org forward slash 16-steps. And 3. Support the Trust's aim of planting and establishing 20 million trees by 2030 by donating at nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash mag forward slash plant dash a dash tree. Finally, we are very grateful to the funders and partners who support our work on climate change, including DEFRA's Green Recovery Challenge Fund, 
the European Regional Development Fund, HSBC UK, the National Lottery Heritage Fund, Natural Resources Wales, Northern Ireland's Department for Agriculture, Environment and Rural Affairs, the Northern Powerhouse, the Royal Oak Foundation, the Welsh Government and the Wolfson Foundation, as well as many other generous people and organisations. Paintings in the National Trust's collections are magnificent works of art in their own right, but senior national curator John Chu says they also offer insights into their historic owners' lives. Taken as a whole, the paintings' collections cared for by the National Trust could rival those of the world's greatest art galleries. Unlike a gallery, however, the 13,000 oil paintings in Trust Care are nearly all displayed in the houses of their historic owners. They reveal what those individuals cared about most, their friends and family, their interests, their place in the world. Here, we find objects that were not only beautiful works of art, but also personal memorials, status symbols, diplomatic gifts, and objects of spiritual devotion. This made the choice of just 100 artworks for a new book, 100 paintings from the collections of the National Trust, published this September, both difficult and easy. Difficult because every one of the Trust's pictures is indelibly connected to an extraordinary place and offers something unique. Easy because there were such riches to choose from. From Dutch master Rembrandt van Rijn, 1606-69, to modernist artist and sculptor Barbara Hepworth, 1903-75, Venetian city view painter Antonio Canaletto, 1697-1768, to pioneer of surrealism Max Ernst, 1891-1976, the Trust's collections represent a wonderful array of talents, spanning centuries. Although the Western tradition of painting predominates in most trust houses, examples of the exceptional achievements of Asian art, amateur practitioners and self-taught working-class painters can all be found in the trust's collections. Together, the makers of these works of art and the subjects they depict document a prismatic range of experiences of class, gender, race and sexuality. Our knowledge of these works of art has been built up over decades of meticulous research and conservation work by trust experts. Much of what we share in the book is the result of a great deal of detective work into the individual history of each painting and the recovery of their original meanings. By drawing out those rich meanings and showcasing their beauty and variety, I hope the paintings will become just as important in the lives of trust supporters today as they were to their makers and owners, decades and centuries ago. We asked four curators to each tell us about a trust painting from the new book 100 Paintings from the Collections of the National Trust, which is out this autumn. Rebecca Wallace, cultural heritage curator, chose The Lake, Petworth, Sunset, Fighting Bucks by Joseph Mallard William Turner, circa 1830. It always strikes me that so much of this idyllic scene of Petworth at sunset, painted by J.M.W. Turner, 1775-1851, can still be experienced by visitors today. Petworth Park Cricket Club continues to play matches on the estate, and the deer herd wanders freely across the capability-brown-designed parkland, delighting visitors just as they did in Turner's time.
Petworth is home to 20 paintings by Turner, the result of numerous commissions and purchases made by Petworth's prolific art collector owner, George Wyndham, 1751-1837, 3rd Earl of Egremont. Turner stayed at Petworth regularly and painted in various locations. He even had use of a studio space. His accommodation on the top floor enjoyed views across the park, and interestingly, this painting is almost the same size as the window opening in his rooms. Perhaps it made the perfect vantage point? The painting is one of a group of four canvases by Turner, designed to fit carved frames set into the panelling in the Third Earl's extended dining room, or carved room. The paintings are positioned along the length of the room at table level. I like to imagine that dinner guests, who are facing away from the windows, could also enjoy wonderful views of the parkland, which lay behind them. It might seem today as if the paintings have always been in the carved room, but they were removed by the Wyndham family in the 1870s, and the space was subsequently used as a drawing room. They remained at the house, but instead were hung, along with Petworth's other turners, in a dedicated gallery room, until the Third Earl's carved room was restored in 2002. Thanks to the continued care of the National Trust and their loan from Tate Gallery, we can once again enjoy these exquisite paintings in the magnificent setting for which Turner created them. Emile de Bruyne, Assistant National Curator, chose A Barber Outside the American Factory in Canton, Guangzhou, China, by George Chinnery from 1836. In this painting, on display at Collerton Fishacre in Devon, we are looking at a man seated on a triangular box of the type used by Chinese barbers to carry their utensils. His legs are drawn up under him, and his right hand rests on a portable charcoal stove for heating water, against which leans his straw hat. On the ground, in front of him, next to his shoes, lie a long pipe and a tobacco pouch. The pole for carrying the box and the stove over his shoulder has been propped against the wall behind him, on which some notices with Chinese writing have been pasted. Around a corner to the right, we see an American flag fluttering from a tall pole. This tells us we are on the waterfront at Guangzhou, which, between 1757 and 1842, was the only place in China where foreigners were allowed to come and trade. This picture of an itinerant barber was painted by George Chinnery, 1774 to 1852, who was born in London but spent most of his life working as an artist in the European colonial settlements in Asia. He lived in British India for a while, where he obtained many portrait commissions. But his extravagant lifestyle led to mounting debts, and to escape his creditors, he moved to the Portuguese enclave of Macau, near Guangzhou, in 1825. There he again produced many portraits. Chinnery's eye was romantic and picturesque. The painting of the barber is beautifully composed and lit, with the various tools of the man's trade all carefully fitted in. The image is a beguiling mixture of realism and exoticism, aimed at the expectations of the Westerners who were likely to buy it. In choosing this subject, Chinnery was borrowing from the genre paintings by Chinese artists as well as from the European tradition of Orientalism, or the fantasy vision of the East. He painted with the emblematic vividness that today we might find in a graphic novel or a blockbuster film. This was China, 
as Chinnery thought it should be. Head curator Sally-Anne Huxtable chose In the 19th Century the Northumbrians Show the World What Can Be Done with Iron and Coal by William Bell Scott from 1861. Iron and Coal is a celebration of the manufacturing industries of Tyneside, which were at the height of their success during the 19th century, with global trade bringing great wealth to the region. It is the last of eight works painted by Scottish-born artist William Bell Scott, 1811-1890, for the courtyard of Wallington Hall in Northumberland. Owner Sir Walter Trevelyan commissioned the series to tell the history of the triumphs of the Northumbrian people, from the building of Hadrian's Wall to the industrialization of the 19th century. Bellscott was part of the circle of pre-Raphaelite artists known for their detailed and intensely coloured paintings that reimagined scenes from literature, such as the works of Shakespeare, Chaucer and Keats, and the Arthurian legends, as retold by Mallory and Tennyson. I find Iron and Coal particularly fascinating, as Bellscott takes the vibrant colours, heroic style and intricate details of pre-Raphaelitism and applies them to a contemporary subject. It was unusual for the pre-Raphaelites to depict scenes of everyday life, so these works by Bell Scott are very rare. He brilliantly elevates the achievements of the age he lived in to the level of the legends of the past. But the painting is also a romanticization of the masculinity of the men, heroically wielding hammers to forge a wheel over a flaming furnace. The painting shows nothing of the real lives of the men, and sometimes women, who worked in the factories, forges, mines, quarries and docklands of the Northeast. In fact, one of the workers in the painting is an idealised depiction of Charles Trevelyan, Sir Walter Trevelyan's heir, wielding a sledgehammer. And finally, cultural heritage curator Jerzy Kirkusz-Belinski chose Vanessa Bell's portrait of Virginia Woolf, circa 1912. A passion for art united sisters Vanessa Bell, the artist, and Virginia Woolf, the writer, despite their different natures. Many of Bell's paintings adorn the walls of Woolf's home of Monk's house, including her portrait, which hangs in the dining room. In the intimate painting, we can see a communion of creativity between the two women in their chosen artistic fields. Woolf had just completed the first draft of her debut novel, The Voyage Out, published in 1915, as she sat in front of her sister's easel, and Belle was the inspiration for one of the characters in the book. Later, Wolfe would call on Belle to provide designs for the dust jackets of her books. Wolfe wrote of Belle's work, One feels that if a canvas of hers were hung on the wall, it would never lose its luster. It would never mix itself up with the loquacities and trivialities of daily life. The portrait is a product of shifts that were happening in the visual arts, in the early 20th century. Exhibitions in London in 1910 and 1912 introduced the public to the work of post-impressionist artists such as Manet, Van Gogh and Matisse and were greeted with wide derision. Despite this, some British artists, including Bell, did embrace what they had seen. They yearned for a new visual language that rejected the symbolism and sentimentality of much Victorian art. It would be Matisse in particular who influenced Bell's portrait. In Bell's words, Matisse made her see painting in an entirely new way, seeing a picture as patches. This can be seen in the unmixed brush strokes of pure colour Bell used to model Wolfe's features and the details of her clothes. 
It is this use of a rapid, almost sketchy technique which makes Belle's portrait of her brilliant sister so appealing to me. The technique has an immediacy that reminds me of Wolfe's use of stream of consciousness in much of her writing. 100 Paintings from the Collections of the National Trust is available to buy from nationaltrustbooks.co.uk. Every purchase you make helps the Trust carry out vital conservation work. From path clearing and organising fundraising events to supporting the training of tour guides, members of almost 200 National Trust supporter groups are helping the Trust and making lasting friendships along the way. Katie Blanchard finds out more. The National Trust North Hampshire Centre's Zoom calendar has been packed during the lockdowns. Special interest talks and virtual garden visits and tours have helped to keep the group together when the pandemic prevented their usual regular activities. Liz Pope, chair of the North Hampshire Centre, says, We even ran a photo competition, inviting members to submit pictures of happy memories at trust places. It was a great way to keep in touch. In less socially distant times, members of the North Hampshire Centre enjoy real-world activities together, lunches, group visits to favourite trust places, and lectures with guest speakers. The events are a way for the community to enjoy shared interests and the group donates any surplus funds to local trust properties for specific projects. Liz says, at its heart, our group is a social one. The North Hampshire Centre is one of almost 200 National Trust supporter groups up and down the country, bringing people together in support of the trust on a local level. There are three different types. Centres and associations are social groups of people looking to explore the trust together in their local area and beyond. Friends of groups develop deeper relationships with a trust place by organising events, getting involved with the volunteering team and learning about conservation and fundraising. And for those who love the outdoors, National Trust volunteer groups get together to help properties carry out tasks such as constructing or clearing footpaths. Liz says, Our local property is Tudor Mansion The Vine here in Hampshire, and helping to take care of it is important to our members. She continues, We've donated more than £100,000 to The Vine over the years, including towards the refurbishment of the 17th century brew house, the extensive roof repair that was completed in 2017, the installation of a water source heat pump, and the new play area for children. We're all proud to have been able to help make these improvements. The model of supporting the Trust through local centres and associations has been in place for almost 75 years, beginning when the first centre in Manchester formed in 1948. A couple called John and Dorothy Barton were the driving force behind what is now the Manchester Centre, which is still thriving today. Its aims were to raise awareness of the Trust and to further its works through speaker meetings in the winter, visits in the summer, and social events throughout the year. It's a pattern that has stood the test of time. Kathleen Miller, the Manchester Centre's chair, says, Today we're still bringing like-minded people together with social events, day trips to Trust places, and an annual lunch for members. Since the Manchester Centre formed, the Trust's supporter groups collectively have donated more than £23 million to local Trust places all over England, Wales and Northern Ireland, and contributed hundreds of thousands of volunteered hours of time. One such group is the Exeter National Trust Volunteers. 
The volunteers support rangers in Devon with outdoor jobs ranging from scrub clearing and footpath maintenance at Castle Drogo to weeding at Knight's Hayes and stewarding events at Killerton. Susan Illing, chair of the Exeter Volunteers Group, says, I love the way volunteering for the Trust brings people together. As volunteers, we get to see the incredible work that goes on behind the scenes to look after all the different types of properties. She continues, I have fond memories of working at Greenway, Agatha Christie's home, shortly after the Trust took it on in 2000. We spent many weekends clearing footpaths. We rediscovered ponds and sculptures and opened up the viewpoint over the River Dart. Mrs. Hicks, Agatha Christie's daughter, would come to see what we'd found. She was always thrilled that we were helping restore the grounds. While each of the Trust's supporter groups may have a different focus, they're united in their common purpose. Susan says, Getting out and about in wonderful places with such a friendly group definitely keeps me involved. One of the members who helped found the group 40 years ago still volunteers to this day. Groups obliged to suspend or move their activities online in 2020 and 2021 are now looking ahead with optimism. Members of the Manchester Centre are planning their 75th anniversary celebrations, while the Exeter volunteers have just had their 40th anniversary. Susan says, It's been lovely to be able to mark the anniversary as a group. Being together is really what it's all about. Now let's hear what the volunteers themselves had to say. John Abbott, chair of the Doncaster Association in Yorkshire, told us what his supporter group has been up to. We did a few things as a group over the last year or so, as allowed, including planting trees at Clumber Park in Nottinghamshire. But we missed our usual events. We're more than members of the group. We are friends, and we've got big plans next year to make up for lost time. We usually organise one five-day holiday a year for members, but next year we're planning two one to Warwickshire and one to Powys, to explore trust sites in the area. The Enfield Association in Greater London organised coach trips for their members. Secretary Pam Moore explained how important these are. Our outings are a lifeline for many members, as we organise a coach so people can visit trust places that they might not be able to get to otherwise. Like other groups, our outings raise a surplus that we've put towards all sorts of things, from the Rose Garden at Anglesey Abbey in Cambridgeshire to repairing the antique oak armoire at Oxborough Hall in Norfolk. Recently, we even made a donation towards a working sheepdog at Hatfield Forest in Essex. David Kimber is a volunteer for the Friends of Finchhampstead Ridges in Berkshire who support the Surrey Landscapes Ranger team at a local level with woodland management tasks. There was a significant increase in visitor numbers during the pandemic and, as allowed, we regularly visited the sites to check for wind and weather damage and to litter pick. We also recently upgraded boardwalks to provide sure-footed access for when the weather changes. It is very rewarding to see the positive changes we are able to make. Bob Han, former chair of the North Cotswold Association, described the positive impact of donations from his supporter group. We made a donation to Lodge Park in Gloucestershire to help create a wardrobe of 17th-century-style dressing-up outfits, including cloaks, dresses and matching suits, and jerkins with sashes and breeches. The outfits have inspired younger visitors and also brought generations together. The costumes can't be used at the moment because of the pandemic, but it means a lot to the group to make donations like this that benefit visitors.
especially children. Carol Taylor, chair of the Royal Sutton Coldfield Centre in the West Midlands, told us about her group's involvement in the Summer Challenge at the Birmingham Back-to-Backs. One of the projects we most like to support is the Summer Challenge at the Birmingham Back-to-Backs, a courtyard of working people's houses from the 19th century. The young people are trained up as tour guides and it gives them skills for life and boosts their confidence. We love doing a tour as a group and being shown around by one of the guides. We can see how they've risen to the challenge while enjoying time together. And finally, Annie and Andrew Weaver, Secretary and Chair of the Pembrokeshire Association, explained how their supporter group has coped during the pandemic. Members of our association come together from all over the country to share interests, experiences and friendship. We all miss that during the pandemic, but we did manage some activities when allowed, such as daffodil bulb planting at Stackpole. In normal times, many of us enjoy joining informative walks with the Pembrokeshire Ranger team, as well as monthly talks and trips away. Thank you to everyone who has been involved in supporter groups over the years. To find out more about your local supporter group and how you can get involved, visit nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash supporter groups. And now it's time to hear from you. First up is a letter from Elizabeth Holland from Kent, who was amused by the Escape into a Garden article in the summer edition of the magazine. The article by Rebecca Bevan in the summer edition of the magazine made me chuckle. Similarly, I bought a 1900 vintage terraced house with a garden that needed some, um, restoration. Take time to understand what is unique and special about your space. A derelict shed, piles of rubbish, couch grass, bindweed and no fences in my case. The house needed urgent attention to make it watertight, to provide it with heat and light, to deal with the leaking mains water pipe and to replace the blown double glazing. Once the house was safe, I did live a year there because I had the results of the renovation piled everywhere. I dealt with the shed. It was only standing because it was leaning on its open door so I shut the door and pushed until it fell over. A bit of demolition work had added mounds of broken bricks to the garden, so I did consider my materials carefully and reused them. I bashed everyone to rubble to create hardcore for a new pathway. An early purchase was a hawthorn whip, which, ten years later, is four metres tall and a favourite for birds. I discovered how light moves through the garden, none in winter. With some guesses and mistakes, it is maturing well. Joyce Upton from Norfolk shares her memories of Ham House in London. I was delighted to read about Ham House in London in the summer 2021 magazine. My grandparents lived in the village of Ham, and I did too in my early years. As a child, I used to visit Ham House frequently, as my grandfather worked there as a gardener. Each visit, I was given apples to feed the horses that grazed in the field opposite the main entrance. When I was a teenager in the 1960s, my grandfather used to police Ham House at night all alone with an Alsatian dog. He told me stories of ghosts that he saw, Lady Jane Grey and Anne Boleyn apparently carrying her head under her arm. Another family member remembered that in the Second World War, my grandfather acted as a fire watcher from the roof of Ham House. 
Former sound recordist Patrick Hyam from Surrey shares some interesting memories about filming at Trust Properties. As a sound recordist in the film and TV industry, there have been a number of occasions where I've filmed at Trust Properties. A really good job for Thames TV started with Beatrix Potter at Hilltop, progressing down the length of England before finishing up at Mullion in Cornwall. At this latter location, it was arranged to have the lobster fishermen offload their catch. I bought a lobster to take to the friends I would be staying with that weekend. Our hotel chef was amazed at the cheap price I'd paid, saying he couldn't get that at the local market. Tip, buy direct. One of my colleagues took one home on the train back to London. Another interesting shoot was at Place and Rieu in Gwyneth where some delightful ladies had devoted all their energies to raising money to secure a few more yards of coastline. Also at that time, we took in Place Neueth in Anglesey, filming an interview with the Marquis in his roof garden. We were up there because the family only get their house back when the visitors have left for the day. And finally, we hear from Bob Reed, who leads a team of coppicing volunteers at Hatfield Forest in Essex. He explains why coppicing is such an important traditional craft. I first got involved with coppicing at Hatfield over 40 years ago, in 1978, and took over leadership of the group in 2000. Hatfield is a managed medieval woodland, which was once part of a network of ancient forests which stretched across the country. Coppicing is a traditional woodland management skill, where trees are regularly cut down to near ground level which encourages them to put up vigorous shoots the following year. It extends the life of trees like hazel far beyond their usual 80-year lifespan. In Hatfield, we have some trees which are thought to have been coppiced for 800 years. In the old days, people would have used hand axes and cross-cut saws to coppice. We have chainsaws now, but the process is essentially the same. I think it's important to keep traditional woodland management skills alive. Our work creates a patchwork of habitat that is great for birds, bats and insects. We often get a nightingale which comes and sings for a short time, then moves on. The wood produced also provides income for the Trust's conservation work. Hatfield was once home to Iron Age encampments and was used as a bomb store in the Second World War. We are acutely aware of Hatfield's history. It's a privilege to work here. Visit nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash mag forward slash volunteer to get involved in volunteering as guidelines allow. Receiving and reading your messages is a real highlight for the National Trust magazine team, so thank you to everyone who contacted us. Please continue to stay in touch. You can write to us at the editor, National Trust magazine, Helis, Kemble Drive, Swindon, Wiltshire, SN2 2NA or email magazine at nationaltrust.org.uk or you can find the Trust on social media. Rachel Fielder from Surrey joins the Trust just before restrictions were introduced last year. She's found her Trust membership has given her a new perspective on spending time outdoors. This piece is read by Neka Okoye. My family have been trust members for years, but I put off joining myself. Then, in early 2020, I moved jobs and had a mindset shift. I wanted to go outdoors more, get a bit fitter and explore the local area, so I thought, why not join? Then coronavirus hit and everything changed. 
Once places began to reopen, I started walking regularly at local places in Surrey, especially Polesden Lacey, Frencham Little Pond, and Hindhead Commons in the Devil's Punch Bowl. I love that the Trust is so steeped in history. The houses all have their own stories. At Polesden Lacey, I remember hearing about Mrs. Greville, the last private owner, who was always holding parties and did so much for the estate. She's even got her own rose named after her. It's such a nice place to escape to. Mostly, I enjoy exploring and finding new pathways. Polesden Lacey is so vast and the landscape is gorgeous. It has lots of signposted paths, so I never get bored. I might start on one trail and then end up on another, but I've got a good nose for exploring. I'll be walking through a woodland and all of a sudden there'll be an opening to a beautiful hidden viewpoint or I'll stumble upon a little brook. I usually take a rucksack with water, snacks and a blanket. Once I found a nice spot, I tend to sit there with my own thoughts and appreciate things like the bark on a tree or the sound of the wind. I sometimes take my Kindle too and have a little read. I go to Frencham Little Pond about every three weeks to watch the sun setting over the top of the big pond. It's always a stunning sight. I enjoy noticing the changing seasons, the oranges and reds in autumn, and the wildlife. I first went on my own and found that other visitors are so friendly. People will give you a smile and wave or comment on the scenery. It's a connection just seeing other faces. You can speak at a distance and nothing feels weird. I found it to be a little slice of normality during the challenges of the past year. Last Christmas, I bought my boyfriend a membership because I was determined to get him involved. He loves it now too. I never thought I'd be one to advocate for it, but my membership has really changed how I see the outside world. I've got fitter and more adventurous and had something to look forward to during the tougher times. It's been a huge life changer for me. It's wonderful to hear how Rachel's found some normality during the pandemic. For ideas on more trust places where you can escape and unwind, visit nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash lists forward slash places dash to dash relax. Before we wrap up this edition, it's time to hear about some of the events going on at National Trust Places this autumn. Please make sure you check individual property websites, the National Trust app, or call the property before you visit. At Deneva in Carmarthenshire, three exhibitions are showcasing curated treasures and new artworks. The exhibitions will run throughout 2021 and 2022. Fragments of 18th century block printed wallpaper, samples of plaster work and plasterous tools from the 17th century, Items discovered under old floorboards can reveal so much about a home. Finds from Newton House, Deneva, are on display in Archaeology of Home, an exhibition of historical building materials. The objects reveal the techniques of the original artisans and modern-day conservation experts. In Unlocked, Deneva Estate's rich history is told through a curated selection of 125 objects, some never seen by the public, in a special open storeroom. Look out for a traditional Welsh hat and apron and a pair of leather overshoes worn by a donkey to protect the lawns when pulling grass-mowing machinery. The exhibition celebrates the Trust's 125th birthday in 2020 
but had to close soon after it opened in 2020. Newton House is the historical setting for a new exhibition of the work of contemporary Welsh craftspeople, artists and designers. Ceramic artist Hannah Walters takes inspiration from the remarkable decorative ceilings and plasterwork at Newton House. Her work will be displayed in an impressive Victorian cabinet which once belonged to the V&A Museum. For festive flowers, head to Cateel in Cornwall from late November to December. Savour the beauty of Coteel's floral garland in the Great Hall. Each year, volunteers and staff weave hundreds of flowers, all grown on the estate, into an 18-metre-long garland to make a magnificent festive spectacle. It's a labour of love and a Yuletide tradition first begun in the 1950s. And as Christmas approaches, Lift your spirits and spread the festive joy at trust places with winter illuminations, winter walks and other seasonal delights. To plan your visit, browse our gift ideas and try a craft or two. Visit nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash Christmas. From dragons to devils, find a walk with a story at its heart this autumn. Explore the fairy woods at Croft Castle in Herefordshire It's said that a bell in nearby Amesbury used to be rung at sunset to prevent travellers getting lost in Pokehouse Wood, whose name is believed locally to come from Puck, meaning nature imp or fairy. Though there's no bell now, markers will keep you on the right path as you explore this site of special scientific interest. Scientists believe that Devil's Dyke in West Sussex was formed in the last Ice Age, but local stories say that it was dug by the devil to drown the parishioners of the Weald. Either way, it's the longest, widest and deepest dry chalk valley in England. Trace the tragic tale of Prince Llewellyn and his faithful hound Gellert in a walk, taking in Gellert's grave, the River Glaslin, and the spectacular gorge of Abba Glaslin Pass in Snowdonia. You'll pass the Church of St Mary, which is believed to have parts of a 13th-century Augustinian priory incorporated into it. The otherworldly appearance of the basalt columns at Giant's Causeway in County Antrim are sure to fire the imagination. One local story claims the causeway was built by Irish giant Finn McCool. Take in dramatic cliff faces and the wild North Atlantic Ocean. Pre-booking for visitor experience tickets is essential. Dolbury Hill, near Killerton in Devon, is a now extinct volcano, which was once the site of an Iron Age hill fort. Rumour has it the hill was once the hiding place for buried treasure, guarded by the fearsome Killerton dragon. Legend places Dragon Hill in Oxfordshire, also known as White Horse Hill, as one of the admittedly many possible sites in England where St George slew the mythical dragon. J.R.R. Tolkien's son, Christopher, believed it was the inspiration for Weathertop, where Frodo Baggins is attacked by the terrifying ringwraiths in Lord of the Rings. Find these walking routes and more at nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash features forward slash walking dash myths dash and dash legends. Felicity Roos is our National Consultant for Soil Science. We spoke to her about the importance of healthy soil and what we can all do to help look after it. 
I've always been interested in science, sustainability, and the environment. I grew up in South America and Australia, and my degree was land and water science at the University of Sydney. Initially, I wanted to specialize in water, but my first job was in soil health and sustainable agriculture, and my career has been in soil ever since. My role here is to help colleagues across the Trust understand why soil is so important and how they can improve it through the way they manage the land. I advise property teams at places such as Wimpole in Cambridgeshire and run workshops for staff and tenant farmers on how to monitor the quality of soil on Trust land and the impact of changes made. It helps them make good decisions about how to improve soil health. The vast majority of food comes from the soil, whether that's crops and vegetables or grass-fed to animals raised for meat. So do building materials, wood from trees and clay and sand for bricks. Even medicines, such as penicillin, were originally developed from a soil fungus. A quarter of all global biodiversity spends some or all of its life in the soil. If you degrade that biodiversity, there are knock-on effects. Reducing the number of insects available to birds, for instance, it plays a key role in recycling carbon, water and nutrients too. Soil and its inhabitants help break down pollutants and act as a large filtration system, cleaning the rainfall and groundwater which ends up in our rivers. Soil in good condition absorbs more rainwater, which helps prevent flooding. Peat has been in the news recently, and I'm really glad to see the sale of peat compost to gardeners is set to be banned in the next few years. The Trust looks after 40 peatland sites of specific scientific interest, SSSIs. We are working to restore many acres of peatland, but deep peat soils and bogs can take thousands of years to form and contain so much organic matter that they act as sponges, storing carbon and water and supporting specialized plants and mosses. When peat is damaged, it releases large amounts of stored carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. Some of the best ways to keep your own soil healthy are to limit the amount you disturb it and keep it covered with plants or mulch. Maintain a diverse range of plants in flower beds and lawns and avoid spraying chemicals on your soil. If you'd like to find out how healthy your soil is, earthworms are a good indicator. Dig a hole and count earthworms. The more there are, the better. Another fun experiment is to bury something made of white cotton, a hanky, old t-shirt, or even a pair of underpants, and leave it for two months, then dig it up. The more it's rotted, the more active and healthy your soil biology is. Soil is a vital resource, and we can't live without it. We need to do everything we can to protect it. Find out more about the Trust's work to protect peatlands and going peat-free at nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash features forward slash going dash peat dash free. Well, that's all from us this autumn issue. I hope you've enjoyed it and do let us know what you think of this audio edition. You can email us at magazine at nationaltrust.org.uk. The National Trust magazine Autumn 2021 was presented by me, Sally Palmer. The readers in this edition were Neka Rakoye, Glenn McCready and Olivia Vinnell. It was produced for National Trust magazine by Sound Understanding and all items are copyright. CDs of this audio edition are available to visually impaired members of the National Trust and are distributed by the RNIB. If you know of anyone who is eligible and would like to receive them, please call the RNIB on 01733 375 370 
or you can write enclosing the membership number to Sales and Operations, RNIB, Midgate House, Midgate, Peterborough, PE11TN. Thanks for listening and I hope you can join us for the next audio edition of National Trust magazine.